that very famous story of the prodigal son. <coughs> the context, as you well know, is set out in verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's the accusation. And they are put out by the fact that Jesus met up with and entertained these outcasts, really. He ought to have known better. And in response to those charges, Jesus tells the three parables, including the one that starts at verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. Father, sorry, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. King James has a fantastic phrase there, in riotous living. I think that's really, really good. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. I think the King James says he fell upon his neck. Imagine that. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring on his finger, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. 
kulilikwe and uh, explore this culturally through the eyes of a bemba man and um, and see where we get to before my time runs out <laughs> yes i am mindful of your program madam tena <laughs> follows you thank you <clears throat> it was back in july 99 I was serving as principal of a theological college in Zambia but part uh, part of my commitments in town I was on the board of uh, Salvation Army Old People's Home and in fact I was the chairperson of that that group that supported the work which uh, some Canadians were running and part of my obligations was to preach at chapel every so often they invited me on that particular day and they had given me this passage we read and that was my text i had preached on this text many a time before so i did what ministers do you take the old one and uh, and then breathe some life into it top and tell it that night the night before suddenly i thought it's just not going to happen these people they shuffle into the church and sit down slumped in their chairs and i drone on and on and on and on and some of them fall asleep and then when we sing the last hymn they get up shuffle out and sit in the sun waiting for the meal they're not about to get up and go and kick against the traces and go and engage in riotous living <laughs> all the sort of exegesis i had done uh, and all the uh, the learning i had picked up in various theological institutions i had put into this i just thought it is not going to work it would be inappropriate but lord what do i do how do i preach from this passage in a way that my 84 year old that zambian ladies and gentlemen will feel that they have learned something something that is of help to them I, it just wasn't happening I, eventually i slept with no solutions and then I, in the morning i got up and i started walking up to this place it was about a mile away from my house Lord what am i going to say to them and as i'm walking the lord says when you start preaching or when you start preparing to preach and you got a passage what do you do i say well i ask questions 
and and then whatever answers I get, or firstly I notice things, then I ask questions, then I get answers, then I ask more questions, then I get answers. And by that time, usually, I'm getting to the point where a message begins to form. All right, let's do that. The Lord says, what do you notice in this passage? I say, well, from my pre-understanding and all the studies that I have done, one of the things that I notice here is inheritance, or rather, the abuse of inheritance. Okay. What was it? How, how did he abuse the inheritance? You will know that um, a man before he died would cut up the estate according to the number of boys he had. And then he would add a fictitious one. So in this case, two boys, three portions. And the double portion would go to the order of the two. The single portion would go to the younger and um, he, the younger person was obliged to remain on the estate to look after his aging dad until after the old man had died. If he so wished, he could then move away and uh, sell what he had. But once he moved away, he would go to some other part of Israel. What he wasn't allowed to do was to take value out of Israel to somewhere else. Now that was standard. Everybody knew that. But what happened in this story is for some unexplained reason, and Luke doesn't give us many details. He just said the young man said to his father, give me my inheritance. And the father obliged. Now in those very few words there, we have the shattering of, of a system. For a start, it was totally unacceptable that a son would say to his father, let me have what belongs to him. Yes, it did belong to him. And in due time, he would have it and do with it whatever he pleased. In due time. He was not allowed to ask for it. And uh, so by asking for it, he was effectively saying, Father, you're hanging on too long. You should have died by now. I can't keep waiting for something that is mine. So there was a breach in the relationship with the father. And the people who would have heard what happened, <gasps> there would have been a sharp intake of breath. And the way the father should have responded, again, was easy. Father should have picked up a big stick 
and really showed the son what was what and who was in charge. That's what should have. But he obliged. And by obliging, the, the people in the community would have begun to think of him less and less and less. Spineless man who has brought dishonor into the community by allowing his son to do what he did. So the young man picks up, he goes away, shattered relationships with his father and his older brother, and also shattered relationship with the whole community. He goes away and does what he does, and, and we have that sort of going down. First, it's all rosy and great and, and fantastic, and friends and parties and so on. But eventually, famine strikes. And as always happens during times of famine, families close ranks. I can remember as a boy, uh, we, we had enough to live on, but not an awful lot. But there were always those homes where they had plenty of food. And so as small children, we would, towards lunchtime, we would head towards that house and play hard with our friend who, who belonged to that house. And his mother would come out and see how many, oh, eight, all right. And she would then prepare the food and say, come on, boys and girls, come and eat. And we would all really enjoy the food. But then she wised up. <laughs> so... So she would come out and say, John, come here. John would go, get in there. So he goes inside, and he stays inside for 10 to 15 minutes. And when he comes out, we look, you see, as a black person, if I'm very hungry, my lips will be, uh, will be dry. And so we look at his lips, and they are moist. We know he has eaten. Then she comes out and calls another one of her children. And we know today there will not be that generosity we've come to expect. In times of scarcity, families close ranks. And this young man found that out the hard way. So it says he then hired himself to a man there. And the mention of pigs suggests that it was not in Israel. And a good Jewish boy is now working with pigs. But one of the saddest comments in this story is where it says, he longed to eat the pods the pigs were eating. How low could you get? The ambitions that he'd had, the relationships that he'd had, the great stuff that, that, that he'd been brought, born into, it came down to having the ambitions of a pig. Simply wanting to eat what the pigs were eating. And once you hit rock bottom, there's nowhere else to go but up. And he came to his senses. His senses had departed from him. I long for the day when senses would depart from me. 
When I was nine, in the town where I grew up, there was, uh, it, it was just shortly uh, before independence, and um, there were very few black African people who had cars in the late 50s, early 60s. But there was this man who had uh, a fleet of taxis. And for his personal transportation, he had a fantastic Ford Mustang. <laughs> and, and I used to look at this vehicle and say, when I get older, that's the vehicle I will drive. But when I got older, uh, I became a Christian, and materialism was uh, challenged tremendously. And so I now long for the day when the senses will depart from me and money will not be a problem. And on that day, I will buy that Ford Mustang. <laughs> when I turn 60, yes, I am over 60. Um, when I turn 60, the church had heard me tell this story. And for about six months, they, they planned it. They planned to make me drive uh, a Mustang, and there's a man who lives in a little town called Gillingham, somewhere um, south of the 303, and, uh, and he, he has these American cars, uh, and they hired one of those for me. And for three months they'd been collecting money, and nobody let on. And, and on the day before my birthday, they said, they say, come here, we'd like to make a documentary on the homeless project we run. And I said, oh, great. And when I got in, they presented me with a certificate. And they said, you can go and enjoy this tomorrow. <laughs> Fantastic. I, uh, I, I went and got this thing, great. You know, cars that are 45 years old, you had to drive them. They don't drive themselves <laughs> like most cars that we drive nowadays. You had to drive. Anyway, I had a great time. But um, if senses go away and money is no problem, I will buy that car. <laughs> His senses had departed from him. But they returned. He remembered. That word remember is an interesting one in the way it is used in the Bible. We hear a lot about God remembered. God remembered. It isn't as if God had gotten whatever it was out of his mind. It's just that the remembrance calls for action in the present. So God remembered the Israelites in Egypt. And he sent Moses. God remembered Noah in the ark. So he caused the rain to stop, and so on and on. This young man remembered. And some of the interesting things he remembered, he says, my father has lots of hired servants. Now, any nobleman in his father's uh, situation would have had three sets of servants. They would have been the person who was a slave, who was really their state's manager. He was the one who had trained these boys. And he would be totally responsible for what happened to the estate. And then they would be the ones who had a permanent job on the estate. But then they would be the ones who were hired every morning, especially during harvest. 
And the word he uses for hired servant speaks of this third tier of slaves. The ones who work for my father have more than enough to eat. I will go back and ask him to make me a third tier servant. Not, not, not even a slave, but down below that. So he gets up and goes. And, and it says when he, he was a long way off, his father, I presume what happened is he comes over the ridge into the valley and the children he, see him first. And they start singing those taunt songs. They can smell the smell of pigs on him. And they start singing those taunt songs. They know exactly what is going to happen. The elders and his father are going to come together and they will read him out of the community. It was a standard practice. They will say, you've made your bed, now go and lie in it. And the father would lead the men in doing that. And he would then have to go back where he had come from. That's the way the story should have ended. And if it had ended that way, we probably would never have heard it. But what we read is that the father runs. Uh, we see Muslim people today, they, are, they seem scared to show any part of their flesh. And if you're going to run in a skirt, you've got to hoist it up. King David danced in a skirt and exposed himself. And Saul's daughter, Micah, she was so disgusted that she made sure he knew that he had, he had humiliated himself in front of all these young women. So here we have a nobleman, no less, running through that village. Noble people don't run unless there is a riot. But he ran. Why was he running? It says he ran and threw his arms around his... Why did he do that? In my view, in my understanding, following the cultural elements of the story, he put a protective cordon around his... Because everybody knows he's going to be abused and sent packing. That's what he deserves. But the father puts this protective cordon around him. And then says to Abdul the servant, put a robe on him. Not the hired servant, third tier, but back to sonship. That's what the Lord did. And you know, interestingly, about a week or two later, another father would run semi-naked, stripped, to almost being indecent through the streets of Jerusalem, running to that cross to meet you, to meet me, to throw that protective cordon around you and to save you, to save me from the ravages of sin, Satan, and death. That's what Jesus was talking about. That's what the Father did. 
So that's the story as I understand it. You may understand it differently, but that's the story as I understand it. And so now I'm thinking, how am I going to make 84-year-old Zambians have a feel of the disgust that the first hearers would have felt, the shock of the story ending the way Jesus told it and not the way it should have ended. Abuse of inheritance. So the next question I asked was, well, what is inheritance in Zambia? You see, for us, inheritance is not receiving money, houses, or any of those things. What we call inheritance as Bemba people, if a person dies, after we've buried him, we come together. Now you have to stay with me here because this will be strange stuff to you. After we've buried the person, we, we come back home and the close family circle, we sit around together and we nominate a younger person to inherit the man who has died, or a younger girl to inherit uh, a woman who has died. And sometimes we appoint a girl to inherit a man. It doesn't really matter. So once we have nominated somebody, we take some clothes from the wardrobe of the deceased and we make this person wear them, and then we pray for them, we bless them, and we give them the name of the deceased. And then, because we are spiritual people, whether or not we are Christians, we invite the spirit of the dead to return and inhabit the body of the living. That's what we call the living dead. And so this person who inherits becomes the deceased. And the relationship, for example, the relationship between my cousin Bernard and, uh, and I, that relationship changed when Bernard inherited my father. For us in my tribe, it goes from a man to his sister's son, not directly down to his own son. And, and so Bernard now, I defer to him as my father. Well, if he didn't drink so much, I would... Um, the relationship changes. And all the people who knew my dad and know Bernard, they will treat Bernard in the same way that they treated my dad. That's what we call inheritance. Now, in the older days, it doesn't happen so much nowadays, but it did happen in the older days that a widow, surviving widow, and because we are polygamous, if there are two or three or four women, the youngest is likely to be about the same age as the one inheriting. And they would say to that woman, go with this man, he is now your husband. My maternal grandfather, his third wife, he married that way. Okay, so that's the way we do inheritance. What has it got to do with the biblical story? And remember what I'm trying to do is to tell that biblical story in a way that will have the same impact of shock uh, that Jesus' story would have had. So I say to my uh, uh, congregation, 
And I didn't say I want you to imagine. I just started telling a story. I live in a, in a Zambian village. And I live in my uncle's village. My uncle is married. He's got my aunt and a second wife. And uh, they're very happy, and I'm very happy. I'm a single person, but the time comes when I start thinking of getting married. And in the village, there's a delightful young woman. And I say to myself, yeah, that's the one I'm going to marry. However, unbeknown to me, the wives of my uncle said to him, we're getting on, why can't you marry a younger woman? who will help us with all the chores in the house and so on. Not every polygamist wanted to marry another woman because he wanted to be a polygamist. Oftentimes it was because his wife said, I'm getting on, find somebody else. <laughs> so they said to him, get another, another woman. He looks in the village and is a delightful young woman. He asks, has she, been, has she been spoken for? No, she hasn't. So because he's got the wherewithal to marry her, he goes ahead and marries, and suddenly I realize my uncle has married the woman of my heart. And I'm gutted. But what can I say? I hadn't told anybody about it. And my uncle didn't know my intentions. But then after a while I say, you know what? There's no problem here. My uncle is an old man. Soon he will die. And when he dies, I will inherit him. And when I inherit him, they'll give me that woman to be my wife. <laughs> so there's no problem. A year goes by. Two years go by. Three, four. My infatuation with this woman or my love for this woman is, is growing. It's not getting less. But my father, my uncle, is still alive. And then one day I can't contain myself I persuade that woman to share my bed. At the point I said those words, I persuade this woman, and I had noticed that as I started telling that stories, all, all my congregation sat up. <laughs> and they started looking at me. When I got to that point, and I said, I persuade this woman to sleep with me, one elderly lady said, don't ever say that. I said, why? She said, it is such a bad omen. If it happened in a village, they would have to dismantle the village. And everybody would have to go and live somewhere else. It is such an evil thing. So don't even think it. That's the story of the prodigal son. Who had violated his uncle's bed. But the uncle came and said, he's my nephew. I know he's done wrong, but he's still my nephew. It, that serendipitous discovery that day, I discovered I was an African. <laughs> and that I could teach as an African in a way that would bring about the same sort of reaction that Jesus' hearers would have heard as Hebrew people. And really, this is what I'm pleading for. That all of us, out of our cultures, we should dig deeply to find those nuggets 
that God has deposited in our backgrounds and use them to make us effective communicators of the word of God to those who are listening. So there are ways of telling these stories without simply repeating what we have, we have seen. They need to connect. I remember telling this story, and my, I've got two minutes, have I? Uh, I remember telling this story to a group of 18-year-olds. And I said, now, that's the way I would treat this story as an African. What about you? And a young Irishman stood up and said, it's like this. A young man goes to university from East Belfast. And for the first time, he sits beside a girl who is Roman Catholic. He's never had that experience before. But as the weeks roll on, he discovers she's human, she's, she's funny, she's great fun, and she is very intelligent. And she can teach him things that he didn't know in terms of mathematics or geography, whatever it is. Eventually, they fall in love. And he says, if that young man then took that girl to East Belfast, it's not going to be just his father. It will be all the men and women in the neighborhood who will drive them out. There are about 15,000 couples, Northern Irish couples, who live on the mainland because they can't live in Northern Ireland. But if the father put his arm around that young man and his friend, and say to the community, this is my son, and whoever he brings into my house is welcome. That would be the prodigal son in that context. God bless you.